according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. As my computer boots up. Matthew chapter 15. I have similar sound effects, by the way, when I wake up in the morning. There's a little jingle. and uh, We'll turn that off. How about that? Matthew chapter 15. We are uh, ready to move on into verses 21 through 28, dealing with the Phoenician woman, the Syrophoenician woman. And uh, although in Matthew she's referred to as a Canaanite, and in Mark, she's referred to as a Greek of the Syrophoenician race. And we will talk about that. Because the idea of race in the ancient world is a bit different than the idea of race in, uh, in our modern, sensitive, 21st century American multicultural kind of time. So we'll, uh, we'll have some fun with that. All right. I think I'm booted up now. Laptop is anyway. I don't know, I still haven't turned the projector on. That's fine. All right. Start with some prayer. How about that? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for watching over us on the roads. Thank you for keeping us safe from harm. Thank you for watching over Sharon and the kids. Father, in all that you do, you are faithful day by day. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 15. This is episode number 41 in the Galilean ministry. We are winding down the Galilean ministry, actually. We've already seen the feeding of the 5,000. We're closing in on the feeding of the 4,000. We're closing in on uh, uh, Peter's great confession, uh, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And shining, shining moment for Peter there. And uh, it's immediately followed with Get Behind Me, Satan, where he... Uh, goes from the great pride of uh, doing well to the uh, great failure of uh, denying the need for the crucifixion. So that's all coming up. Slideshow ready to go. Here we actually finished last week, episode number 40, The Traditions Attacked, except I failed to give you the final slide. So I thought I'd give that to you this morning, and then we'll uh, move on to the, to the last deal. We had in your notes, under point four, where the Lord used the occasion of this accusation to teach divine viewpoint uh, regarding personal defilement. The issue that it wasn't what they were putting into their mouths that defiled them. It was what comes from the heart. It's the mental attitude that lies behind every sin. It's the, it's the orientation of the mind that sparks mental attitude sins, that sparks sins of the tongue, that's, that sparks the, uh, the overt sin. And this is the heart attitude that even precedes mental attitude sins. It is the orientation of your thinking, whether you're uh, oriented to the Holy Spirit and his guidance and leaning for believers, or whether you're oriented to the, uh, to the sin nature, which Pastor Myers was teaching us Sunday night, the, uh, the 
decisions we make as far as whether we're going to submit to the flesh or we're going to submit to the uh, to the Holy Spirit. So he uses this opportunity because these these uh, hyper legalistic Pharisees are so controlling and using their rituals and their traditions and all of this other things to control the thinking of their followers. And Christ is trying to get divine viewpoint across to his own disciples and also planting seeds amongst the Pharisees themselves and some of these others that are following the legalistic religion. You may not get anywhere with them today, but you may be planting some ideas to say, you know what? Maybe there's a grace way of looking at this. <laughs> Maybe... Maybe there's just something not quite right with this legalistic religion we've been pursuing and trying to trying to uh, have a sanctification by works is exhausting. And at the end of the day, you start to realize, you know, if we can't have a salvation by works, what makes us think we can have a sanctification by works after the fact? And people start to get reoriented that well, maybe maybe there's some grace that works here. And particularly if they come to realize that they're saved by grace through faith, maybe they start to realize that the outworking of that salvation, the uh, where Scripture says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, they realize that the post-salvation sanctification, that's a grace operation as well. And maybe they can start to embrace principles there. So... The Lord utilized this pattern. I try to utilize this pattern. And, and it's not about winning arguments. And it's not about uh, debating back and forth. It's just about teaching the truth. Speaking the truth in love. Let it out there. And if it, if it works today or if it works five years from now, if something jogs your thinking from something you heard years back, then, uh, then that becomes an opportunity as well. This projector is working. Okay, good. I'm doing different things with a laptop these days. And I was afraid that I was going to ruin the... The hookup with the projector. All right, listen and understand forms a uh, great imperative for disciples, believers under teaching. We're commanded to listen, but we're also commanded to understand. He that has an ear, let him hear, means that you have to not just simply hear what's being communicated, but you have to understand. You have to apply faith, unite it by faith, and be profited by the message. The Pharisees were paranoid over ritual obedience, and Jesus described the reality of Mental attitude, sin, that's what defiles you. These were the principles we gave you, the twin, twin principles. Behavior does not determine clean versus unclean. Behavior is a reflection of a clean versus unclean mental attitude. Behavior is a reflection. It does not determine. We, wanna, we want to be very careful in what determines something versus what is a reflection of something else. And that becomes important. I hope as we teach the Word of God, as believers are transformed, that's why we're not worked up over uh, the legalistic approach to behavior. Like other churches can get really wrapped up about it and, may, and, and putting out a list of rules and watching, uh, for example, watching uh, the clothing, the code of conduct, you know, whether your hair is long enough, whether your skirt is long enough, whether uh, your, uh, you know, your particular outfit meets the approval. And this long list of, of rules, whether your activity, you know, dancing or not dancing or, or whatever it is that you're doing. No, we're not observing behavior as a uh, mode that produces uh, righteousness. We're teaching the Word of God, where thinking is transformed, where the being is becoming more Christ-like. And then the behavior is a reflection of that new nature. 
see. And the more Christ-like believers become, the behavior is going to reflect that. And so we can relax about the specifics on the behavior, uh, even while, obviously, we're still teaching the Word of God, allowing that to be transformed. Thirdly, in a point C, the Pharisees were offended. Uh, they heard, but did not understand. And, and keep in mind, they, in order to be offended, they had to have heard the message. It's very, very vital to recognize. There are some folks that, that talk about, you know, they don't have ears to hear, so they don't hear. No, they do hear, but they don't unite it by faith, and so they don't understand, and so it does not profit them. We're told in Hebrews, why did the word not profit Israel in the Old Testament? And we're told because they did not unite it by faith. And it's not that the word itself is unprofitable. All scriptures, God breathed the profitable. The word is profitable, but it must be united by faith in the hearer who takes in the word, believes it, and plants it within the soul, and, uh, and then is profited by what is profitable. So that ubble on the end of profitable becomes very important. So the Pharisees were offended. In order to be offended, they must have heard the message. They heard, but did not understand. They were not the Father's planting. And they are not our responsibility to deal with. As we look at uh, chapter 15 here in Matthew, and you look at verses 12 and 13, the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard? Statement of fact. They heard this statement. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. See, they're not the father's planting. They're the adversary's planting. Remember, the tares are sown right alongside the wheat in that parable in, in Matthew 13. And so uh, he said, let them alone in verse 14. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. In other words, it's not our realm. The father will deal with that. It's not our realm. Believers need to relax over things that are not our realm to deal with. We have responsibilities, and our responsibilities are towards one another in the local church. We have giftedness. We have ministries. We have effects. We have expectations the Father has placed upon us. We were saved in the good works, which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We need to pursue the works the Father's given us and not be sidetracked into these crusades that we've got no business dealing with in the first place. We need to be very humble and very careful as New Testament believers in the church. What is our realm and what's not our realm? Because if it's not our realm, we've got passages like this that says, let them alone. It's not our realm. It's not the Father's planting. See, if, if our realm and edification is about the Father's planting... Then we take that back to 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 again and say, you know, you are God's field, God's building. And we realize that's where our responsibility is in gold, silver, precious stones. This other realm, let them alone. See. And uh, all the rest of this, you know, does, does it bother me that this world is, is uh, doing the things it's doing? Sure. But I've got to get over it because it bothers the Father a lot more than it bothers me. <laughs> right? Don't want us. I, I want to see the day when, when Jesus Christ is no longer a curse word. I want to see the day when he's the king on the throne and, and the world is worshiping him. Sure, I want to see that. But I'm not going to bring it about through my crusading or my human effort. And, and to try to reform this world, McGee, J. Vernon McGee called it whitewashing the devil's world. Just putting a coat of whitewash on it saying, oh, isn't that pretty now? Right? Putting dress on a pig or something like that. You know, it, it's still a pig. You can put a pretty dress on it and lipstick on it, whatever else you want to do. So, uh, 
Anyway, another of the famous quotes of J. Vernon McGee, they, they wanted him to come and participate in their crusades and the, the moral uh, crusading. And he said the Lord didn't charge him to clean up the cesspool. He charged him to fish in, this, in, the, fish in it. And that's what we do. We give the gospel. We, we see folks saved. We get them under teaching. We make disciples. But we're not here to reform the Molochites. We're not here to, uh, to reform the uh, devil's world. It's passing away and along with it its lust. And the timetable is the Father's good pleasure. It will be done away with when God the Father gives the word and Jesus Christ brings it to an end. We cannot bring this cosmos to an end and we're not supposed to try. Let them alone. Matthew fifteen fourteen. Let them alone. Point D, the disciples required additional explanation. He was patient to reteach those principles. In verses 15 through 20, Peter said, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Now, there's the difference. The Pharisees heard, did not understand, and became offended. Peter heard, did not understand, and said, I need more teaching. I need more teaching. Teach it again. Teach it again. Teach it again. And so the Lord is faithful. And this is what I didn't give you. I didn't give you the E, right? I thought all that work, and I didn't give you the E. Temporal life issues or temporal spiritual life issues are eternal. Let's keep these things straight. Temporal life issues are temporal. Spiritual life issues are eternal. And I want us to major in the majors and be more relaxed on the temporal life issues. Sadly... Uh, believers get distracted and they draw lines in the sand and they go to war with one another over matters that aren't worth it. I would rather be wrong. Oh, I would rather the other person thinks I'm wrong. Who cares? All right, maybe I am wrong. <laughs> and maybe years from now I'll figure it out and I'll get some teaching and I'll grow up and, and I'll put things together. But in the meantime, in the meantime, let's just have some grace with one another. And allow these things to take place. All right. So temporal life issues or temporal spiritual life issues are eternal. And that's what it comes down to. It's not about what goes into the mouth, passes into the stomach, as an elim- and is eliminated. It's not about what we eat day by day. The kingdom of heaven is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness and power. The eternal values of what we have. Okay. So E is what I sadly neglected to give you last week. Now you have it. Move on to today's lesson on the Syrophoenician woman. Short journey to Phoenicia, episode 41 of the Galilean ministry, recorded both in Matthew and in Mark. Matthew 15, 21 through 28, Mark 7, 24 through 30. And we'll be doing a lot of bouncing back and forth, although I think we use, prim- well, no, we'll use, we'll use both of them pretty well on an equal basis. So let's look at it. Uh, Matthew 15:21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at us. All right. The Lord's ignoring her, and so she keeps hounding him and also on top of that hounding the disciples but he answered and said i was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of israel 
But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. All right, that's Matthew's record. Mark's is largely identical. There are just a couple of details. Let's look at it. Just a couple of slight details, but they are noteworthy. Mark seven twenty four through 30. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him... A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Gentile, or literally a Greek, of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. And then uh, there's a little bit of an expansion in Mark. We'll talk about uh, in verse 31, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the region of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. So Mark gives a little bit more of a detailed geographic itinerary for how his route of return came from uh, really the long way around if if he was observed departing galilee into this border region then they would be looking for him to return to galilee from the west they'd be looking for him to return from that border region but he actually goes a long way around up north to sidon and over to the east and then back around through decapolis so he's actually going to come out on the eastern side of the sea of galilee and uh end up uh, either coming around or needing a boat to cross back into Galilee from the uh, Sea of Galilee side instead of from the uh, from the west, from the Phoenicia side. All right, I'll get, uh, so we can do some geography work here as well if we uh, have a few moments at the end of our time. Get this up and running. All right, so points of study. First of all, we realize that the context for this is following the conflict with the Pharisees. It's following the conflict. We want to realize that there's a pattern, principles, when he comes into conflict, what does he do? And we find that typically he will go away. He will withdraw. I'll give you vocabulary on the, on the withdrawing here in a moment. But is he, is he running from the fight? Is he afraid of the fight? Is he, uh, is he avoiding confrontation? Or is he keeping his own spiritual walk where it needs to be? Where in between, he never backs down from any confrontation. But when the episode is over, he makes sure his own thinking is straight. And he takes the time for himself to to maintain his orientation before the Father. And vitally so now uh, that these disciples are starting to have their own ministries. Things have started to get more intense since the point where he sent them out two by two. And there are more frequent times of withdrawal now that he's teaching his disciples this important principle for their own ministries. As they uh, are having an opportunity here with this woman, he, he wasn't going to answer her. He doesn't even speak to her. And uh, so they start chasing after the disciples and they want to know, well, how do we handle this? 
All right. So this is, uh, under point one, I like to give the context for every episode. And the context for this episode is that it follows the conflict with the Pharisees over their traditions. And so Jesus is departing for Phoenicia. Departing for Phoenicia. Now this is the region on the coast. Uh, a region that was actually given to Zebulun and Naphtali, but they never conquered it. It's a region that they will have in the Millennial Kingdom. But they never conquered it, and they never drove out the Canaanites from those coastal strongholds. All right. I found some wonderful overlays. Bible sites. And uh, there's a whole ton of them. And actually, I'm going to go ahead and turn off some of the modern roads and cities and geographic names. We'll just limit ourselves to the uh, Bible times. How about that? We'll also turn off the airports. They didn't have airports back then. You want to leave the airports on? Uh, we'll turn airports off. All right. Tyre and Sidon. Now, the, uh, I want to do the whole thing. Let's just do this one. We can limit it to each region. I should put a link on this on our website so that anyone who wants to use it can uh, put it on their own computers and things. All right, let's just turn them all on and then we'll zoom in here. The northwest region here on the coast, what today is uh, Lebanon, where we had a lot of, I guess I've got to turn the modern cities back on, don't I? Okay, fine. All right, there's Sewer. That's the modern title for Tyre. This uh, peninsula out here didn't used to be a peninsula. It used to be an island. In fact, it was two small islands. Ancient Tyre was two small islands. One was... The smaller one was the whole thing was given over as a temple. Uh, these guys were the champions of Baal worship, and they exported Baal worship all over uh, amongst the other Canaanites of the land. Sidon was the firstborn of Canaan, and all of the Girgashites and Jebusites and Hittites and all the ites that were supposed to be destroyed when uh, Israel moved into the land, uh, this was their, their primary capital. This was what they turned to was Tyre and Sidon. Uh, anyway, this used to be originally an island. It was two islands, and uh, it was unconquerable. The Assyrians tried it, couldn't do it, ended up just simply taking tribute. The Babylonians tried, ended up taking tribute. Uh, but Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 26 and 27 and 28 in there, prophesied against Tyre. Uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, other prophets, came along and prophesied against Tyre and says, you're going to fall. You think you're, you're invincible. You think that, uh, that no one can touch you. You have the, the utmost pride. And uh, the Lord said, you're coming to an end. And sure enough, um, there were really two tires. There was the island tire, and then there was a city tire on the coast. And they had a, a bridge between them and boats between them. And if an, an army came in to attack them, they just destroyed the bridge and fled there to their island. Well, Alexander the Great said, all right, we can take care of this. And he destroyed the city on the coast and took all the rubble from the city on the coast 
poured it into the water and made his own bridge. And he made his own causeway across there. And uh, over the years, of course, the silt built up and built up. And here we are now, 2,333 years later. And now it's a peninsula. <laughs> so once they weren't an island anymore, uh, they uh, they begged for peace. And uh, Alexander says, no, you had your chance. <laughs> so he all he wanted to do was to go take his seat in that temple and uh, and accept worship for, uh, from them, that uh, he viewed himself as the living embodiment of, of Hercules and uh, the son of Zeus, and all he wanted was for them to, to worship him for a season, and they, uh, they had their chance. Anyway, they turned him down. Sidon is further to the north. Of course, Beirut is further to the north. And uh, Saida, the modern name for it there. Anyway, today it's called Lebanon. And this is the region. Now, it's not entirely clear. This would be the Galilean region down here. It's not entirely clear that he makes it completely into the territory of Phoenicia. The language is a bit ambiguous. When it says he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon, the, uh, the region, the outskirts, the border territory might be a way that we could render that. Likewise, the term in Mark is, uh, is a bit vague where it could be used either way uh he went into the region of tyre some manuscripts add sidon the the older ones the better ones don't but anyway it may be that he was simply in the uh the disputed border region gee imagine that a disputed border between israel and lebanon all right and so he's up there in those mountainous regions and i think it's interesting because if you look at what this woman does a Canaanite woman from that region came out. If you, if you notice that in Matthew uh, 15, verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that region came out. And so it, it appears to be that he's in this border territory between the two lands. He's not entirely in Galilee or not entirely in Phoenicia. She's not entirely in Phoenicia either because she had to come out to this border region and, uh, and uh, meet him there. And uh, that's the language in Matthew, anyway, that describes that. And this uh, fuzzy border region, by the way, was deliberately left that way. The, the cities of Tyre and Sidon themselves were part of the Roman province of Syria. And they were under the Syrian uh, uh, leader that Rome had appointed. Galilee, of course, was under Herod. Herod the Tetrarch had uh, territory there over, over that region. There was kind of a, a no-man's land in between, and the Romans kind of kept it that way. They didn't want Herod stepping on the toes of the of the Syrian governor and vice versa. And so a lot of ways this region kind of became filled with some bandits. They became filled with some outlaw kind of guys that didn't want to be in either realm. And uh, Herod would involve, Herod the Great actually in the generation prior to that made a big name for himself clearing out these bandits. If you ever read a, a biography on Herod, he uh, he gained a lot of fame in this uh, in this particular region right in here. All right. This is called a withdrawal in verse 21 of Matthew 15. Uh, anakoreo is the term. Anakoreo. It's unique to Matthew. It's not found in this place in Mark. Anakoreo. And we actually spent more time on it back in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2 when John the Baptist had been arrested and Jesus withdrew into the region of Galilee. He had to depart out of Judea. So this was a withdrawal. 
Anakoreo is the term. Is this projector blinking behind my back? Is that in and out? I wonder why it does that. Kind of bugging me. Like I say, I've, I've started to do some different things with this laptop connecting to a, a different monitor at the house. And I was wondering if, uh, if that might ruin my settings. Let's take a look. Uh, that might be why. But we don't want to do that, do we? Okay, I'm in clone mode. Do you feel like you're in clone mode this morning? I think I'm a clone now. All right, well, let's, uh, let's drop this thing down, and we'll do better with that. We'll see if that improves things or not. Anyway, it's a withdrawal mode. Anakarao is a fun word study. I'm not going to pursue it here this morning uh, because we did so back in, in, and you may have those notes already available for you, when uh, the Judean ministry was coming to an end, uh, the baptism ministry with John the Baptist came to an end, John the Baptist got arrested, Christ uh, moved up to the north. And uh, that was also a withdrawal. This is a withdrawal. The idea being... There may have been an attempt on his life at this point that if they were offended with that statement, they may have initiated arrest proceedings right then and there. And so getting out of Dodge helped him to uh, to uh, to avoid that. And yet once he got there and he got established, he could not escape notice. That was the term in Mark 7:24 that he moved into a house, but he could not escape notice. The idea, though, was that he tried. He tried, he wanted to, he attempted to, but he could not. The language of, uh, of dunamai, to be able to have power, this was something beyond his power, beyond his ability. He was unable to escape notice in Mark 7:24, And that is a fun word study, Lanthano, number 2990, Lanthano. And there are principles involved here of maintaining a low profile. <laughs> All right. There are settings and situations and events where you want to maintain a low profile, where you want to be circumspect. We're supposed to be uh, harmless as serpents, yet shrewd uh, as a, I mean, harmless as a dove, yet shrewd as a serpent. We should have some wisdom. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time for the days are evil. There is a season for, uh, obviously, taking a stand and being confrontational and uh, earnestly contending for the faith, which was once and for all delivered unto the saints. But then there is also a time and a season to remain obscure, to stay below the radar. And he was attempting to do this and was unsuccessful at it. It's a term that's only used six times in the scriptures, Mark 7:24, Luke 8:26, Luke 8:26. we've already covered. This was where he came to Capernaum, and there was a woman with a hemorrhage. And she didn't want to bother him, so she kind of snuck up behind him, and she reached out and she touched the, the, the hem of his, of his uh, robe. And uh, she was unable to escape his notice. 
he was aware that the power had gone out from him, and he turned and he said, "Who touched me?" And so we've had the term already in Luke eight twenty six, and I didn't I didn't spotlight it on the on that episode. I didn't pay much attention to it on that episode, to be honest. But it's also used in Hebrews thirteen two, and it's used twice in Second Peter chapter three. In Hebrews thirteen two. Let the love of the brethren continue to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels, and it's escaped their notice that that's what they've done. <laughs> they've entertained angels without knowing it. See, the Lord sends angels, and they look just like people, and they uh, they become the visible test, testing of our uh, hospitality, of our grace orientation, of our patience, of our... Uh, agape love of our Christian walk. And you uh, start to wonder sometimes after a ministry opportunity passes and there's a conviction in your soul, why is that? It's not a guilt trip. It's a conviction in your soul that you had a work assignment and you blew it. And you think about it after the fact and you go, you know what? I should have done something. And I didn't. Okay. Why is that? And now, search your heart. Make sure you're in fellowship. Make sure it's not, you know, it might just be a carnal guilt trip if you're all guilty for carnal reasons. But if you're in fellowship, if you're walking in the light, and then that conviction hits you, and you've searched your heart, you know you're right with the Lord, then you know what that conviction is. It's not a carnal guilt trip. It's a legitimate Holy Spirit conviction taking place there that, you know what, maybe that was an angel. <laughs> maybe that was... Uh, Whatever it was, it was an opportunity, and uh, and we blew it. All right, so that's uh, Hebrews 13. It's also used twice in Second Peter chapter three. I like Second Peter three. I quote Second Peter three every Bible class, but this is a verse that uh, precedes the verses I normally quote because there are certain things that if they escape our notice and they're not supposed to, we're in trouble. 2 Peter 3, verse 5 and verse 8, you've got the mockers that come in the last days with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. When you're living in the last days and you're surrounded by mockers, the thing they will mock more than anything else is your expectation of his coming. You primitive, foolish, ridiculous believer you believe all those myths you believe the bible you believe that jesus is coming you believe in the second advent you believe in the rapture sadly there's even believers out there that will mock your belief in the rapture and saying ever since it's all the same as it was from the beginning of creation and of course they don't call it divine creation it's all what has been from the beginning of big bang right everything is doing what it's doing and it's been doing it for billions and billions and billions of years and you're an idiot for believing the Bible. When they maintain this, it, Lanthano, escapes their notice that God is a God of justice and that God has inflicted justice upon this earth in times past. And there's evidence everywhere that he has inflicted his wrath upon this earth in times past. It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. You've got evidence all over this globe of a worldwide destruction by water. 
And yet they can look right at it and not see it and deny it and say, oh, no, no, that never happened. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being destroyed, are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. See, that's why they don't like our Bible teaching. I mean, the tree huggers are out there trying to save the world, right? <laughs> and, and we're telling them that it's all going to go up in flames. That's how Ergen Cainer presents it anyway. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved. So verse 8, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. The Lord's not slow. He's faithful. He's patient. We better cling to that. So when it comes to things that escape notice, if there are things that are not supposed to escape our notice and we let them escape our notice, we're in trouble because we're negligent. We're not on the alert. We're not paying attention. We don't have our armor on. We're not tuned into his plan and program. So that's that's the example of it there in Second Peter three verses five and eight. But when we get back to Mark seven, we find out that, you know, he's trying to escape notice. He's trying to take a day off. Now, if he's if he's not publicly ministering, if he's not proclaiming doctrine, why would he perform a miracle? Think about the purpose for miracles, signs and credentials for his divine authenticity. The miracle was supposed to attest to his origin, attesting to his mission. As, as Nicodemus said, we know that you're from heaven because no one can do these miracles unless God has sent him. So if he is in a private residence, out of town, incognito, we would say, no scheduled speaking engagements, this is his day off. And this woman comes with a, with a request. Now, there's nothing illegitimate about her request at all. She's approaching him on faith. She's a Gentile believer. That thing's blinking again. She is, um, has more faith than most of the Jews he's encountered. Go ahead and shut these things down. And um, there's nothing wrong with her request. What, what is wrong with her request? Not one thing. That's right. Not one thing is wrong with her request. All right, let's try this, see if this works better. I think that's going to be a lot better. I can already tell that's going to be a lot better. And yet he's got a problem. There's nothing wrong with this request, but he's got a problem. Because Jesus doesn't just do miracles to show off. He doesn't just do miracles because he wants to do miracles. Everything he does is according to the Father's will. And he's not going to do a miracle if his Father is not going to be exalted and glorified. And he's not scheduled to provide any teaching here. He's not, he's not presenting himself to these Phoenicians. And so in his mind, he can't do this miracle. But he wants to. You'll see that as we go through the issues here. All right. Get caught up to where we are. A withdrawal and where he could not escape notice. 
Oh, yeah. That's even bigger than the other screen was. One. That's a lot better screen. Okay. I'll make sure I get that set up right before we come back tonight. All right. Secondly, background on Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were among the most ancient locations founded after the flood. You can go all the way back to Genesis 10 and find Sidon. You don't find Tyre that early, but you find Sidon listed. Genesis 10, verses 15 through 19. You look at the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth in that, in that chapter. Ham has four children, including Mizraim, Put. Um, let's look at Genesis 10:15 here. These regions were supposed to be conquered, and they were never conquered. Uh, Canaan's introduced here in here, here his children in verse 15, but if you back all the way up to verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and and Canaan. Uh, Mizraim is Egypt. Cush is uh, generally considered to be the Ethiopian region and across the Red Sea into the uh, region of uh, Yemen. Ethiopia and Yemen. Put is to the west. Put is Libya and uh, Algeria and the regions to the west of, uh, of Egypt. And Canaan. Canaan was to the northeast of Egypt along the, the territory of, of uh, Israel and the land of Canaan. You know, the land that they conquered and were commanded to occupy. So Canaan was the youngest and Canaan was the most evil. Canaan, you recall, is, is the one that was even mentioned uh, as the one being cursed in chapter 9 when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done. And so Canaan becomes the father of Sidon, his firstborn. This region here of Tyre and Sidon, the region of the Phoenicians, was the region that all of the ites fled to when uh, Israel did conquer the parts that they did conquer. And Heth and the Jebusites, remember Jerusalem was at first, it was a stronghold of the Jebusites. And the Amorites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Archite and the Sinite and the Arvite and the Zemurite and the Hamathite. And afterward, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. And so uh, it goes back to the earliest of days after the flood. There's a whole lot of history here. Um, it's interesting is that for a season... Tyre and Sidon became Gentile nations for blessing because Hiram became, becomes a friend of David. And we may see Hiram in heaven. I believe we'll see Hiram in heaven. He becomes a Gentile believer, a friend of David. He supplies a cedar for the temple when Solomon builds the temple. I believe for two generations, there's a Hiram one and a Hiram two. I believe that those kings become believers and Phoenicia is ama becomes an amazing blessing because of their orientation to the Davidic covenant. Even so much so that in the years following, when uh, the grandson, it takes about three generations, the grandson of Hiram II is dethroned by a general who uh, named Ethbaal, who uh, takes the throne. And Ethbaal has a son. And uh, they become complete and total pagans, Baal worshippers. And uh, Ethbaal's daughter then is a real hero we all know as Jezebel, 
that uh, gets married to Ahab and starts influencing the northern kingdom of Israel into the idolatry there that Elijah the prophet had to deal with. All right. A whole lot of background on Phoenicia, but I won't. I could spend the next six weeks on Phoenician history. We'll pass by it for now. Point three. They were destroyed, as I pointed out. Alexander the Great conquered them. They became uh, a, a Greek uh, territory, uh, and then eventually now a Roman territory, part of the Roman province of Syria. The woman in this episode is described as a Canaanite in Matthew and a Greek of the Syrophoenician race in Mark 7. The term genos is the Greek term for race. And it's very interesting, the nature of race in the ancient world uh, referenced their kind, their tribe, their family, their clan, their kind. And we don't, in, to, the, to the Romans, to the Greeks, to the ancient world, race had nothing to do with skin color. The idea of race was completely alien. It didn't matter. And they were, they were racist as, as, as people can be today. And it had nothing to do with skin color. <laughs> because you could be equally racist against those of like uh, pigmentation. <laughs> as far as the Romans were concerned, uh, you were either Roman or barbarian. As far as the Greeks were concerned, you were Greek or you were barbarian. And it didn't matter. If you were non-Greek, it didn't matter what your skin color was. Anyway, of the Syrophoenician race. Uh, by this point of time, the Phoenicians have, had established some colonies far and wide. And they had established trading colonies. They were a maritime empire. They were a trading empire. Uh, much like England would come in, in later years, they would have overseas colonies and possessions. And they, they ruled the seas with their shipping. And, uh, and they had no problem paying tribute if it came to that in a particular generation. Because they realized that what all they were doing, they were saving their own skins, they were paying tribute, they paid tribute to the Assyrians, they paid tribute to the Babylonians, they didn't mind paying tribute. They, all they were doing was funding their future customers. Because their customers were going to come back and pay them the money in the upcoming centuries. You know, So, okay, here, here's some money, don't beat us up, don't kill us. And uh, they became trading partners for, for future centuries. So they always knew they were going to get more back over the years than they, than they paid up front in the tribute that they, uh, that they paid out. Well, a number of prominent Phoenician colonies included Carthage. They had several, but one that rose to such uh, prominence that it, that it rivaled Rome was Carthage. And so to the Romans, remember the Romans were not big fans of Carthage. <laughs> That's right. But the Romans made a distinction between the Livy Phoenicians from Libya, the, the African Phoenicians, and the Syrian Phoenicians, those that were allied to the province of Syria. And so uh, you encounter a difference there between the Syrophoenicians and the Libby Phoenicians. Anyway, they had already obliterated the Libby Phoenicians. They, they leveled Carthage. Carthage is gone by this point of time. But Tyre was allowed to remain. Tyre uh, capitulated. Tyre embraced Rome. Tyre uh, was pleased to be the shipping uh, agents for all of the Roman commerce. And there's uh, more history that goes into that. Now this woman is called a Canaanite, a descendant of the original people from that land, and yet politically she is Syrophoenician. 
and we have no problem accepting that both statements are factually true. Genetically, racially, she is a descendant of the Canaanite peoples, uh, and yet politically, she is uh, a, a Greek from the, uh, the Hellenist world there. All right. And undoubtedly, her request here is all in Greek. Uh, it's the, the nature, as it's recorded for us in Greek, of course, in the New Testament, but probably the, the uh, original conversation that they held was not in Hebrew, not in Aramaic. It was actually in Greek. Okay. Despite her Gentile background, she has a significant spiritual perspective. Despite her Gentile background. I don't know if you picked up on this here, but in Matthew, she calls him Yahweh. She calls him Lord, and she calls him Son of David. And even before that, she approaches him for mercy. She approaches him for mercy. Eliao, have mercy. Let me read again from Matthew chapter 15. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. The approach of mercy as opposed to the approach of grace. A Jewish person may come to the Lord Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel, and make a plea on the basis of grace. A Gentile dog comes to Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel, and makes a plea on the basis of mercy. And there are distinctions between grace and mercy. Israel is already the object, the special object of God's grace. Now, there are grace provisions for Gentiles, don't get me wrong. But the primary object of God's grace on this earth is the Jewish people. They are his covenant nation. They are to be the ministers, the dispensational stewards, the ministers of his grace to the Gentile nations. She approaches him as a Gentile dog on the basis of mercy. The basis of mercy. And that, there's studies we can go into, I won't go into this morning, but distinctions between grace and mercy and how they combine together into the chesed, the blessed loving kindness of the Hebrew, is, uh, is a fun study on its own. But she approaches him for mercy. Not worthy, not deserving, not expecting it. But if he provides it, it will be, it will be grace in, uh, to the undeserving, grace in the application of mercy. She also correctly identifies Jesus as Lord, Kurios, and son of David, the Huios Dawid. She correctly identifies Jesus as Lord and son of David. Kurios is 2962. Uh, I haven't been... For those of you listening to MP3s, you can't see the screen, so I've not been reading these numbers. Eleo is the verb, number 1653. Kurios is the noun, 2962. Son of David, Huios Dawid. That's a phrase. I didn't give uh, Strong's numbers for the individual words. What does a Syrophoenician Greek Canaanite have uh, any expectation for the son of David? <laughs> no expectations. A, a Greek Syrophoenician Canaanite dog has no expectations from the son of David. The son of David is the throne that is to rule over the nation of Israel. The son of David is the conqueror, the one that will put the Gentile nations under the sword and, and or put them under the rod and demand tribute from those Gentile nations. But see, she understands more 
than the political application of Son of David. She actually understands more than the Pharisees understand about the Son of David. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot and all these others, and all they can think about is political thoughts. And when they think about Son of David, they think about, great, we get our own kingdom and we can kick Rome out of here. She has a spiritual appreciation for the son of David that says this is the Messiah. This is the one that can deal with the demons that are afflicting my daughter. See, she has a better appreciation for the Lord, son of David, than most of the Jews do in his generation. So we find this background. Now, how did she get this? Where did she learn about the Lord, son of David? Where did she learn about provision for demons? You know, the Romans had all kinds of uh, uh, superstitions about how to deal with demons, how to deal with ghosts, how to make all these sacrifices. And the the Greeks had all their superstitions. The Canaanites had all their superstitions for how to deal with demons. She's having none of that. She's going to the Lord, to the Kyrios, to the son of David. And she correctly identifies her daughter's physical condition as being the consequence of demon possession. As being the consequence of demon possession. Three different phrases that are used, but they all relate to the same principle. My head's going to be in your way of writing that down, isn't it? I went too low. Kakos daimonizatai. Her daughter is demonized. That's what's wrong with her. She's not physically sick. She's demonized. And having been demonized, there are physical effects. But the real problem is that she's been demonized. If the demon's gone, the physical effects to her body stop. See, so what do we want to do? Do we want to treat symptoms or do we want to remove the cause? Ultimately, that's what doctors ought to be doing. And more often than not, though, they just kind of treat symptoms and say, here you go. Hope you feel better. No, she's demonized. That's what Damanidzatai is all about. She's demonized. She has an unclean spirit. That's the Numa Akatharton. And uh, she has a demon, Daimonion, Mark 7, 26. But every phrase that's employed is all saying the same thing, that this demon is inhabiting her, and the consequence of that demon inhabiting her, she is demonized. She's not even herself anymore. And, uh, and that her body is suffering as a result. Now, where did she get that background? Where did she get that teaching? See, this is part of the the invisible heroes. We don't know. We don't know. Whoever the evangelist was that lived in that region. Was it uh, another Jew? Was it a Gentile? Was it somebody that, that was saved, that knew about the truth of God's word, and knew who Jesus of Nazareth was, and knew what home he was staying in? He tried to maintain the low profile, but couldn't. And somebody made that connection with who Jesus was, where Jesus was, pointed out to her, and she had the faith to seek him out to come to this house. All right? Now, we don't know. We don't know. It's part of the invisible heroes, and, and the Father knows, and that believer will receive their reward. All right. Jesus is reluctant to act. And we're going to have to pick up on this next week. Because there's a lot to go into here. But in verse 23, he does not answer her a word. doesn't say a word. 
Now, you remember back in John 4, he's sitting there at the well. The Samaritan woman comes out and he says, give me a drink. And she says, why are you talking to me? It was staggering that he was talking to her. And the disciples come back with the food that they bought from the town. And they don't know what to say either. Why is he talking to this woman? Okay. It's, it would be normal for him to just remain silent. There's the racial component. There's also the gender component. Where he would not have a word to say to her. Now, contrast that with here, where he's completely silent. And you and I are left scratching our heads saying, well, what's up with that? <laughs> he hasn't been silent in the past. Why is he silent now? What is different in this setting as opposed to previous settings? Why, in verse 23, he did not answer her a word. That bothers us, or should. Because he talked to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he had any problem with that. He talks to Mary and Martha, he talks to other women, and he had any problem with that. There's already leading women that are supporting him financially out of their private means. He talks to all of them. The Lord had a ministry to women. Now, he didn't promote it. None of them became apostles. He didn't make any of them, you know, of the 12 and that. But he still had ministry with those women. He spoke to those women. He taught Bible class to those women, Gentiles alike, like the Samaritan woman. But he does not speak to this woman. And so they go to the disciples. The woman goes to the disciples. And now the disciples come to him and implore him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. So not only was she hounding the Lord, but when he wouldn't answer her a word, she now turns to the disciples. I think that's significant as well. How did she know that the disciples had been given authority? Remember, they'd been given authority to cast out demons, to heal, to even raise up the dead. They could have handled this. And I find that to be interesting, too. They don't handle this. So they're going to him, saying, get rid of her. <laughs> Not just get rid of her. Send her away by answering her request. Do the miracle. Make her happy. Off she goes. Yeah, because she keeps shouting at us. So if you're not going to do the miracle for her sake, do it for our sake. <laughs> right? The, the twelve are saying, come on, Jesus. Do the miracle. We're out of our minds here. Okay? Some of this, by the way, will come up again when we get into the parables on prayer. Because when we go with our prayer request, we're to hound and hound and hound and hound and hound as if we're approaching an unrighteous judge and just wearing them out. So there is a principle there in terms of prayer, not exactly what this realm here is dealing with. And uh, we'll come back next week and answer the question, why was he silent towards her? Why was he reluctant to do the miracle? And then what changed that allowed him to freely do the miracle? So you got a week to chew on it, and we'll, uh, we'll address it here next week. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for allowing our study to continue, working out the glitches with the video. It's uh, your grace provision. We thank you for it. Uh, again, thank you for safety on the roads, on the wet roads that are out there. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.